Uh, I'm Jeff, by the way. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen. Again, it's my privilege to be able to share uh, with you and specifically to share with you from the book of Genesis. So we can open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. It's super, super easy. You're not going to need the index or anything. We are, however, going to move to chapter 2, so you might have to turn a page in your Bible. But that's about it. Uh, So Genesis chapter 2, if you would open your Bibles to that. Last week, I reminded uh, all of you about the, the book of Genesis and that it's essentially an ancient book. It really doesn't matter what authorship you put to it, if you believe it's a mosaic authorship, if you believe it's not a mosaic authorship. Uh, It doesn't really actually matter. Either way, the book is old, right? Like, it's old. It it was written a long, long time ago. And and I said this because it, it changes how we approach reading this creation story, this creation account that we receive in the book of Genesis. Instead of reading it through a lens of a 21st century North American reader, which is often what we do, which is why we make so many mistakes in our interpretation of scripture, because we're reading it through our lens instead of the lens of the readers at the time that it was written. So we have to, when we're working with the Bible, be able to kind of bounce back and forth like that, right? So my doctorate is in contextual theology, and contextual theology is exactly that. It's taking original context and being able to move it into contemporary context. And so it's super important to be able to do that, specifically when we read the book of Genesis, because if we, if we get this wrong, our whole trajectory of how we read Scripture is probably going to be skewed in some way or another. And I'm kind of going to show you that inadvertently today when we start to get into some of the Hebraic language in Genesis chapter 2. So we have to learn to read through an ancient lens. And this ancient lens is going to help us to realize that Genesis was not written with the purpose of explaining evolutionary theory, nor was it written to answer our curiosity around Einstein's theory of relativity, if anybody even knows what that is. It's an ancient book, written at an ancient time where religion was practiced by everyone, except that there were many gods that dominated the people's lives. There were also a lot of creation narratives attached to these many gods. And so you have to read through that lens of having many gods and the Israelites showing their God, their one God, a monotheistic God, only one God. The book of Genesis, folks, is essentially Israel's story of how their God, their one God, created all things by literally just speaking the cosmos into existence. Now, through an ancient lens, the narrative of creation was written to show the world that the God of Israel is the true God, that he's the one who created it all, and he created it with just speaking it into existence. Now, this morning, we're going to continue in the creation story, but we're moving into a second creation story out of chapter 2 
in the narrative. Now, chapter two digs deeper, essentially, into our identity and our calling as humanity, as human beings. And it's a religiously subversive narrative that enters into the religions of the day, so the many gods, and it literally turns the thinking of that type of religious thinking upside down. Now, I went into this a little bit last week. If you weren't here, you can watch it online or whatever. But these Near Eastern creation stories, they all have different similarities and distinct differences. So very quickly, I'll point out a few key differences about God's story in Genesis compared to the religious stories of its day in Near Eastern culture. For instance, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're not gods. So in the Genesis narrative, they're they're not gods, they're created by Yahweh the God of Israel. And many would have worshipped the God of the sun or the God of the moon or the God of the stars. But in our creation story, it says that, that, that why worship these gods when you can just worship the God that created it all in the first place? And the water, the water is divided with a word in our Genesis narrative, with being spoken in all of the other uh, like Babylonian, I, I mentioned the Numa Elish uh, story, the narrative of end times uh, or beginning times in the Babylonian culture, which is one of the theories of when Genesis was actually written. It was created by, it was divided by, the water was divided by war. And so we have the only creation story that has peace attached to it, showing God as a peaceful God. So so you see, right in this narrative, if you begin to see God as a non-peaceful God, as a war-based God, you're actually going against Genesis 1 and 2. So you see, the minute we start to read it wrong, we start to send a trajectory of who God is, and we miss his actual nature, hence Jesus coming back to show us. But we'll get into that another day. A garden is made but the garden was not made for the gods, but for God and people together. This was revolutionary. This was totally unheard of. No gods were ever in a relationship with human beings the way that the God of the Israelites was. Vegetation is given in our creation story to feed us rather than to feed the gods. In many creation stories, vegetation was given Human beings were put into the garden to work as slaves to feed the gods. And that's not how our creation story goes. Our creation stories were placed in a garden to commune with God and to enjoy the vegetation for ourselves. Another difference is that all human beings in the Genesis story were made in God's image and likeness, which shows the unique relationship God has with his creation. So, so with all of that in mind, let's put our ancient glasses on again. Everybody like do it with me. Put, put your glasses on. There we go. It's amazing what I can get you to do from the front. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, sorry, that's manipulation. Probably shouldn't do that. Eh? Anyway, <laughs> just joking. Uh, so let's put our ancient glasses on. We all did that already. And let's start reading through this second creation narrative out of Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to pick it up at Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 
5. It says, now, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one, we're going to talk about that in a minute, to work the ground, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. You're going to get a lot of language today. We're going to talk a lot about uh, Hebrew. How many people know Hebrew? Maybe one or two people kind of took it, maybe. Anyway, uh, so we're going we're gonna to help you out a little bit today. Uh, the word one in this text is extremely interesting word. It is the Hebrew word. You're going to probably recognize this. Adam. Like we pronounce it Adam, right? But the Hebrew word Adam. The word one there in the Hebrew text is Adam, which means human or humanity. It doesn't become the man's name until later in the text. And so you'll see that. And the word for ground is the word Adama. So we've got Adam. So the passage would read, there was no human or humanity to work the ground, the Adama. No Adam to work the Adama. So this literal passage is like right away, we see the word one and we miss that it's the same word that's used throughout the Genesis narrative until the end of the passage where there's a a distinct shift. And this word Adam is an important word to understand the Genesis narrative. If you get this wrong, it's going to send you on a trajectory that the church has been fighting about for an awful long time, and we just neglect to actually read it through an ancient lens, understanding the Hebrew language. So I quickly want to explain to you, before we move on in the passages, some of the ways that words are going to be used in chapter 2 alone, because they will be, there's a distinct shift that's going to happen in the way that the language is used. So we've got Adam, which means human or humanity. It does not mean man at this point. It just means humanity. There's one word for humanity. There's no, there, there is a specific Hebrew word for man, and it is not used in this text at this time. So Adam, human or humanity. So up to this point, he's saying the human. There's no gender attached to it whatsoever. Adama, dust, ground, or dirt. And in chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to Eve. Hava. I can't even get the gurgle thing, but it's Hava. It's actually spelled C-H-A-V-V-A-H, Hava. Hava is, how we, is where we get the name Eve. Eve is not in the Genesis 2 story. She's not named in the Genesis 2 story, but we will see her in Genesis 3. Now, it's super interesting what Eve means, Hava. It means, literally, life. So, in the Hebrew... When you put Adam and Hava together, it says human life. So what the Hebrew is actually communicating to us here is that we are literally reading the story of Adam Hava, human life. No gender, keep that in mind. 
So later in the chapter, there is going to be a specific shift. But at this point, Adam simply means human until the end of the chapter. Now, there is some Hebrew words that we also need to know that we're going to see at the end. And that's the word ish. Everybody can say ish with me, ish. You just said man. Ish. Do you know what the word for woman is? Ishaha. So ish and ishaha. That is man and woman distinctly in the Hebrew language. And these two words in the Hebrew language are literally interconnected with one another. So when we read the Genesis creation story in its early stages, when some of our Bibles use the the word man, it's not actually a gendered word. They're using the word man because that's how we speak in our language. It's actually Adam, which simply just means humanity, but we'd be weird if we kept calling Adam the human one. It's not a gendered word. You you need to understand that. It simply means humanity. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see this transition happen where he distinctly begins to call them man and woman or ish and ishaha. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 7. This is a really important verse. Then the Lord God formed Adam, a human, So then the Lord God formed a human from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the Adam became a living being. The human became a living being. What what an amazing statement of the fragility of humanity. Do Do you see it here? We literally come from the dust of the ground, the Adamah. Yet God, the creator, breathed his breath into us. So every human being, folks, is literally a combination of the earth and the divine. The earth and the divine. Look around. You see a bunch of dirty divine people. That's literally how the Hebrew reads here. That's the image bearers, right? That's the divineness. Now, notice no, no gender in the language yet. Let's jump to chapter, to verse 8, sorry. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the Adam, the human, that he had formed. Now, there's something really interesting going on here. I can't get into it too, too much. Uh, but it's often something we kind of ignore, but there is a lot of historicity around this. There's a lot of studying that has been done around this. We were made, this is what I need you to notice. Human beings were made outside of the garden and the garden was made and we were then placed in it. This is an important distinction. And the Bible really doesn't actually give us a lot of details of what's happening outside of Eden. Have you ever asked that question? We have this garden in our story, but there's like more than the garden. There's like stuff outside of Eden. But it's interesting because Adam was created outside and then placed there. And I think that the story is telling us something really important, that the garden is a special place, a very distinct place, because it's where God placed the human he created so that they could have perfect intimate relationship with the creator. 
And this could or would or might suggest that in the garden, there's perfect harmony with God. But outside of the garden, it might be different. There might be something going on here. And I encourage you to read a a little bit about that. Eden is where we are first going to experience what the rest of the world should look like. That's the point here. If, you, if, you, if, you, if your brain doesn't go spinning into multiple different directions, this is where I need you to root yourself in, to ground yourself in. Humanity was placed in the garden so that we could experience what the rest of the world should look like, how we were to function in relationship with one another and how we were to function in relationship with God. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 9. It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, this passage is absolutely fascinating. It is so fascinating that I'm just not going to address it this morning. That's a whole sermon series in itself if I want to get into these two different trees, and there's a deep significance to it. Again, I would encourage you to do some reading on that, uh, but I just can't get into it today. Uh, And then the story uh, moves into a a bunch of rivers and some geography stuff, and so I'm not very good at that, so we'll skip it. Um, One thing I can say, though, is that there's two of these four rivers are known rivers, and we know that they're in northern Africa, Two of them are unknown rivers, uh, and so we don't know the exact place. So two are known and two are unknown, but they are found in the northern Africa area. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. So he took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Don't miss this. The Lord God took humanity, placed them in the garden to work it and to take care of it. This passage is the first time that we start to get some explanation as to what God is doing here. He's placed the human into the garden with the purpose of working it, taking care of it. The two Hebrew words that are used here, a literal rendition of those words would be the motto of the Toronto Police Department, to serve and protect. That's how the Hebrew actually literally reads here, that humanity was placed in the garden to serve it and protect it. The the word serve is actually the same word that's used elsewhere in scripture to describe us serving Yahweh, serving God. Like in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, probably a bunch of you have this verse up in your house. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the exact exact same word there, the same serve. So we're to serve the garden the same way we serve the Lord. In other words, folks, Yahweh, God, is worshipped when we serve what he deems valuable. Not not what we deem valuable, but what he deems valuable. And God deems creation 
as valuable. And so when we care for it, we are literally practicing worship. And when we take it for granted, we are also taking God for granted. Eden is the place in which God is going to teach humanity how to serve and protect creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, the first time I read the Bible ever, I thought to myself, well, that sucks, right? Like, I probably wouldn't eat from that tree if I knew that I'm just going to eat from that tree, and boom, I'm going to instantly die. But as you start to read on through Genesis, it actually says that Adam lived for over 900 years. So living for over 900 years is not really like dying, right? So like what's, what's actually happening here in the text? Well, first of all, it doesn't say that he will literally die in that moment. The text is actually introducing our mortality for the first time. You'll see that in Genesis chapter 3. We are now all going to die one day. It's the one guarantee that we have as human beings here on earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. This is is really interesting. Because if you read chapter 1, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then in, in day 6, when, when Adam was created, he saw that it was very good. And now we're in chapter 2, and he says something's not good. Isn't that interesting? Did, did we miss it when we read this? Because it's like really super important. He says, it is not good. Well, what's not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. You see, everything up to this point has been about what God has done. There's no sin yet in the garden, yet God still says that there's something not right. It's not right for Adam, for humanity to be alone. Still no gender attached to this text. So it's literally saying it's not right for humans to be alone. A human being outside of relationship is not good. It's not right. That's what the text is saying here. A human being outside of relationship is not good. Maybe we probably noticed this during this whole 18 months of crazy, right? We're being locked up in our homes and having no relational interaction with others is just not emotionally and mentally or physically healthy at all, right? Is that Genesis speaking into our life? Absolutely. We were created to be created, to be relational beings. And when we're not relational, we're not living according to our design. We're living outside of relationship. So God will soon remedy this. This is the thing that's still not quite right. And he needs to remedy it through Eve. Remember, Eve means life. God will give the human life through creating relationship. 
Folks, this is really, really important for you to understand, or you're going to totally miss how Genesis is reading here. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, right? Ish and Ishua are needed to be complete in relationship. Now, many people read this text simply through the lens of marriage. And and it does show us a lot of implications for marriage specifically, but I don't think you can limit it to that point. And here's why I don't think that. Let's jump ahead to the New Testament. Jesus was representing what a full human being was like in human form. Jesus was never married, unless you're into the Da Vinci Code which people could be. You never know. We're into a lot of weird stuff nowadays. Yet, Jesus, who never married, called others into a close, intimate relationship with himself. So whether you're married or not, capture the principle here behind the text, and that's that God calls all of humanity to be in a committed partner relationship. Relationships matter. And our relationship begins with God and then moves out and is expressed in our lives with one another. It's part of the creation of the church, but again, we'll get into that another day. Now, this phrase, a suitable helper, this is a, this is a loaded one. This is so much fun. But if you just knew Hebrew, it wouldn't actually be that big of a deal. It's actually beautiful. It's a beautiful play on words in the Hebrew text. First, the word helper is not from a position of less power. Like like we hear helper and we think of things like a caddy to a golfer, or maybe you understand it a little more clearly the way that I do, like a sidekick to a superhero. Right? Like we don't look at Robin the way we look at Batman. The problem is, is in this text, that's not existing. The helper is not to help from a position of less power. The word translated helper is the Hebrew word azar, E-Z-E-R, and it means to rescue from a position of strength. It's the word, folks, that is most often used of God being a helper to his people. So Eve is literally going to rescue humanity from the human's aloneness. That's the way the text reads. Now, the second word used in the Hebrew that the NIV translates as suitable, uh, scholars really struggle with this combination of words. And so the NIV has just chosen suitable, not really actually a very good translation, but like you got to give them some grace because this is like super difficult to uh, interpret and put into English. So it's two words. It's, it's two words combined, and it says connect. Connect. Say connect with me. Yeah, you got k, and you have negged. They're two different words, but then put together uh, into one Hebrew word. K is corresponding to or similar to. So when you use the word ka, you're saying that something is similar to or just like something, ka. When you add the word negd, negd means exactly the opposite. 
So the Hebrew language here combines these two words and it's kenegd. With these two words put together, the passage would read like this. Adam, Adam, humanity, I'm going to make woman and she is going to be just like you and totally different. Right? You see this in the Hebrew? Isn't this amazing? Humanity, like people, are made like we're exactly the same, yet we're completely different. I think science would support me in this, right? We're like the same and totally different. We're connected. Right? So if you want to be funny, just say you're connected. You're connected, right? We're the same and totally different. Yes. Yes, yes, we are. And that is actually represented right in the Hebraic language. So let's keep reading. Verse 19 to 20. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature. That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. This is, this is a fascinating switch in the narrative. Uh, and most scholars really actually kind of struggle with what, what just happened as we're reading along. All of a sudden, it's like, I'm going to make you this suitable helper. Everything's going to be... Uh, in the meantime, let's start naming animals. Right? And, and we can make all kinds of jokes about it and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's kind of weird. So, like, what is happening? To, so, to simplify it in, in a way, most scholars just really believe that God is in this moment encouraging humanity to be creative. That it's sort of the beginning of our creativity, right? And so, we're going to parade these animals in front of you, and you can be creative in naming them. And Bruxy Cavey tells a joke. I might as well tell it. Where... <laughs> Where he's like, you know, at the beginning, the animals come across and the human is like, you know, rhinosaurus or duck-billed platypus. And then the day kind of progresses and it's like he's at, Adam's getting a little tired and so he's like, you know, dog. <laughs> and God's like, dog, like, you know, that's my name backwards. That, that's kind of freaky. And at the very, very end of the day, he's like, ah, cat. And God's response was, oh, I didn't make that. What's this? What's happening here? Get it? <laughs> That's funny stuff, right? The cat is the first demonic presence in the garden. Okay. It's a fascinating narrative, but really what we could really get out of it is it's the beginning of human creativity. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to 23. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. He's tired anyway from naming all the animals, right? And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. It actually literally just means side. The Hebrew doesn't read rib per se, just part of the man's side. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the first time 
in the text that Ish and Ishua is used. So up until this moment, it's been about humanity. And now we do have gender-specific words being used here, separating the genders into man and woman. God has made man and woman to represent his image. Together, they represent the likeness of God. Eve brings life to Adam. The human now has life in the garden. This is really super important. This coming together of Ish and Ishua. The one flesh, it says in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The one flesh is the reconnection of the Ish and the Ishua, which in Hebrew are not disconnected in the first place. Man and woman, I want you to hear this. Man and woman together complete the image of God. That's what this text is showing us in the Hebrew language. We need one another in relationship in order to be complete image bearers of God. Throws a bunch of stuff that's out there, out the window, doesn't it? Changes the trajectory of how you read the rest of Scripture, actually, folks. Our relationship as both man and woman is essential. And again, this text, it's, it's using the imagery of marriage, but we don't have to keep it there. Man and woman together represent God's image. When separated, we're not complete. That's what the text is teaching us. Man and woman made in God's image as equals who need one another in relationship in order to be the complete image of God. And then verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife, so Ish and Ishua, were both, I love, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. They were both naked. Can I get an amen? No, this is super important, folks. This is really like all kidding aside. They were both, picture this. Imagine if we were, no, don't. Let's try a different analogy. Um, Don't really imagine because we're going to mess it all up and bring sin into the picture. But could you imagine Adam and his wife are both naked and here's the key. And they felt no shame. It's why I couldn't even get you to imagine, right? Because if I got you to imagine, shame and sin would come pouring in. But in this text, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, they are literally together, male and female. Ish and Ishua are together. They're totally naked, and they're perfectly fine with it. Can you imagine life without shame? Look at what sin is about to do in chapter 3 to us, folks. You see, we used to be able to be naked together and there was no sexualizing it or anything like that. We could respect one another as image bearers of God. 
That's the lesson we're being given in the Garden of Eden of what humanity is supposed to look like together in relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. But sin has caused us to feel shame. And folks, I need you to hear me, especially in this day and age, shame brings division within humanity. That's really the root cause of what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3 when shame is introduced to us. It's the thing that brings division within humanity. It's the peace that drives our stinking thinking. It's interesting to think of a life without shame and just how drastically different the world would be. I think Genesis chapter 2 is showing us what that looked like. No gender wars of I'm over you because you are this or this or that. That didn't exist in Genesis chapter 2. Shame brings all of this into the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to give us back our dignity and to put our shame to bed. Not literally. I should probably rephrase that one too. Oh, darn. (sighs) He literally if you look at the New Testament, calls us to a new identity. That's the born again, right? A new identity, what Paul calls being in Christ. Because of the fall, which we're going to talk about next week, we have a shame-based identity. But when we receive Jesus, he welcomes us into our new identity that is to be built in him. So I'm trying to show you the imagery of the returning back to Eden that's actually happening from the Old and the New Testament text. He calls us, we hear this language all the time, he calls us to lay our shame at the foot of the cross and to receive love and forgiveness in Christ. You see, the grace that that we receive from Jesus, and I want you to hear me, it begins the process of removing our shame. It begins the process. It's a work in progress. I would be lying to you. I would be preaching a prosperity gospel to you because prosperity gospel isn't always about money. I would be preaching a prosperity gospel to you if I told you that you accept Christ and all your shame will be gone. That's just not true. But the Bible does say when you accept Christ and you begin to build your identity in him, and you receive the forgiveness and the grace and the love that he offers, you are beginning the process of removing shame. It's beautiful. It's a work in process. But when you experience God's grace, you're getting a small glimpse of what life would be like without shame. So in Jesus, in his kingdom here on earth, Right Where God's effective will is done. When God's will is being done here on earth, we're getting a glimpse of a return to Eden. And one day, you can come on up there. And everybody. Not everybody, just the band. (laughs) I'm on a roll today. We could just all come up here and hug and stuff, but then we would be so COVID protocol 
Anyway, one day, folks, when Jesus returns, this is where the Bible goes, he will remove all shame. He'll remove all shame from the world and bring us back to Eden. In the book of Revelation, it's his city. So unfortunately, us rural dwellers, we're out of luck. Or we're all going to become city folk. As we go today, I just want you, as we go back into worship, I just want you to not miss this picture that the text is giving us. We don't divide humanity. There is not one human being over another human being. It does not exist in Genesis 1 and 2. That's shame that came into the world through sin that causes us as human beings to create these statuses and these these separations that we create in our world, whether it's skin color, whether it's gender, whether it's uh, race and whatever, rich, poor. This is what sin has done to our world, and it's all rooted in shame. So as we read these narratives throughout the weeks, because I know you're reading Genesis with me, right? See the beauty in how God intended humanity to be in this wonderful relationship with him, the creator, and with one another as equal human beings. Ish and Ishua completing the image of God so that we could be in deep, intimate relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. Imagine a life without shame. And folks, the New Testament says that it's through the church. Now, I I get it. This is not a reality. But this is the call of the New Testament, that through the church, we're to live within God's kingdom and in his kingdom manifest his will. So we live our lives in Christ and we see glimpses of a shameless world where we don't judge, where we don't separate, where we welcome all of humanity into a place like this and we embrace one another the Ish and the Ishua, together with their creator, saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has begun the process of removing the shame from our lives. Will you stand and sing this song this morning with us and just keep that picture in your mind. Imagine this shameless world And just begin to pray as you sing and you worship the creator of the heavens and the earth.